the Triathlon Show 460. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview David Tilbury Davis. David has been on the podcast a number of times before. I will of course link to all of the past episodes in the show notes. So most of you may know him. Uh, he is uh, a professional triathlon coach and coaches a number of professional athletes at the highest level, but probably most well known is uh, Ashley Gentle, who is currently ranked number two in the PTO rankings. We do, of course, talk quite a bit with David about uh, the training of professional athletes like Ashley Gentle and Sky Munch and others and general uh, requirements for training and racing at that level. But we also have discussion around the training for age groupers and in particular around the off-season training and things to think about and consider when it comes to the off-season training. So that's something that you can look forward to in the second half of this interview. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. They help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools, education and a patented sweat test. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate, sodium and fluid intake. And you can also book a free 20 minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. I have used their entire range of products for a long time and I think they're absolutely brilliant. And you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens, including splits, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. This means that you can execute your swim workouts better and get a better idea of your ability to hold certain paces and stroke rates and understand when and why you start to slow down. The best thing is that you can see and interpret this data in real-time in the session, so it's actually actionable and can help you right then and there. Also, especially if you're swimming solo, it adds some more fun and engagement to swim training, which might make you look forward to your swim sessions in a completely different way and be more consistent. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with David Tilbury Davis. Welcome back to the Triathlon Show, David. Uh, how are you doing? Good, good. Nice, nice to be back. Yeah, it's I think the fourth time possibly listeners can go back and check. I'll put all the previous episodes in the show notes. But for those that are a bit newer and maybe don't know who you are, can you give an introduction to yourself? Yeah, absolutely. My name's David Tilbury Davis and I've been coaching professional triathletes and age group triathletes for nearly 30 years. I'm currently based in, in Europe, but I've, I've previously been based I'm in the US and i guess if you if you're wondering sort of the the kind of individuals i'm currently working with you know on the on the female side of things particularly ashley gentle sky munch and amelia watkinson and then also on the male side asmus fenningson and uh, andrew horsfall turner are a couple of the pros i work with but i typically work with only about 15 16 people globally and that includes pros, but also some age groupers. Is that correct? Yeah, mostly pros. I I still have a couple of age groupers I I work with that I've worked with for many many years, and they you know they're sort of good friends. Predominantly, it's it's professional athletes. So recently, as an example, sort of Justin Metzler started working with myself, and uh, but otherwise, it's it's very much a sort of roll on roll off ferry type approach because people work with me for sort of several years and 
and then they sort of either maybe move on or, or retire from the sport and then, you know, sort of a slot becomes available. So, yeah. And the three female athletes that you mentioned, yes. they're Ashley Gentle, Sky Munch and uh, Emilia Watkinson. They are all ranked really highly. Ashley Gentle, of course, is number two in the PTO rankings, but also Sky Munch and Emilia Watkinson are in the, let me see here, 14th and 16th respectively yes. at yes. the moment. So, so with that as context, I thought that we could discuss a little bit more about the current level of racing in the female long distance world in, in particular. So yeah, what, what do you think? What are your overarching thoughts about the current level of racing and and what it takes to be at that level i think the current level of racing is is a lot deeper than it than it used to be you know is it is it significantly faster i, I think there's a couple of factors at play there i think the first one is and, and we saw this we, we've seen this over the years on on the male front as well and i'm not saying the women were sort of agnostic on this topic it's just that maybe less people sort of decided to explore things like aerodynamics and equipment choices. But ultimately, you know, what we're seeing at the very, you know, at the very top end is, you know, everybody's doing aerodynamic testing. Everybody's working out which is the fastest helmet for them, what tires to run, what tire pressures, what wheel choices, you know, waxing the chain, all these things. And these all sound a bit sort of marginal gains, type of things but the reality is is a good example is recently the whole sort of water bottle camelback down the jersey has sort of exploded now that that's been around for a long time certainly within the uk in what's called the sort of the time trialing scene particularly in long distance time trials like sort of 50 100 mile type thing and and it's pretty well documented that that has a significant aerodynamic gain and, you know, what we've really seen once it's become a lot more public that that is beneficial, whether it's, you know, four or five watts or 20 or 25 watts, is we've started to see a lot of athletes doing that. So male and female. How the governing bodies feel about that is another topic for discussion. But but everybody's looking at all these things that that make small differences. And when all these small differences are added up, you're just seeing faster performances on top of there being more talent. So if you think of that bell curve of distribution of talent, I would just say that bell curve has sort of gotten broader where it was a little narrower before in both the men and the women's. And so you're seeing, you know, more women swimming within two or three minutes of say Lucy Charles Barkley. You're seeing, you know, more women, you know, biking, you know, in and around folks like Daniela Reef. And, and as a consequence, you're then seeing a need to be, you know, a very, very good runner. Yeah, no, that makes sense. In, in addition to the technological development, do you think that, and, of, and the depth of the field, do you think that there is, are there significant changes in training that have happened over the last 10, 15 years that have gotten us to, to this, the current point of racing? I mean, if I aren't, I think I can't really speak for sort of folks like Dan Lorang and Bjorn Giesman and, and, and other sort of individuals that coach athletes, much like myself. And, but I would say uh, not so much. I mean, there's always, you know, small evolutions in, in coaching sort of heuristics or philosophy or thought processes or techniques. But the reality is, is that those things are, you know, a small percentage of, of what coaching really is. 
And, and so I don't think there's anything that's really particularly occurred where people have gone, oh, this new training approach is, you know, is going to significantly move the needle. I think in essence, coaching is always about helping athletes understand how they feel in the moment and sort of pushing that as much as you can and then recovering and pushing it again. So just consistency of training. And that sounds really simplistic, but it's not to denigrate sports science. It's just simply to say that I think the the sports science adds value, but it isn't a game changer. Yeah. About the technological developments, coming back to that a little bit, yes. uh, especially on the bike side of things, is that something that you're actively involved in with your athletes or do they have particular experts that they seek out or, or are, are you a liaison with those experts? How, how do you think, work with your I athletes? I think all of the above. You know, I've, I do bike fits with some of my pros, whether it's face-to-face or remotely. I am involved in wind tunnel testing with athletes where they may be in a wind tunnel and they want me there and we're looking at different equipment choices. I may liaise with certain companies on product development. Uh, I may not. I I may simply be sort of the go-between saying, hey, speak to this person who's an aerodynamics expert or a fit expert or a hydration or nutrition expert. Basically, anything that's performance-related that isn't sort of, you know, a clinical issue, I pretty much work on my athletes with or concurrent with you know experts in other fields you know ultimately any good coach should know their limits and if a particular athlete says to me look i think there's some things that i need to work on to improve my mental game you know beyond sort of positive motivational aspects that a coach should provide then i might turn to somebody that i know that has a you know a breadth and depth of experience in that similar to what i have in coaching Yep. And in training and in preparation for for racing, do you have particular like targets or benchmarks that in terms of let's say you have an athlete that you want them to swim in the main pack in Kona or in the main pack in the 713 World Championships or a PTO race? Do you know roughly like what you're aiming for in terms of certain pool sets and similarly on the on the bike and the run, like certain certain things that you want athletes to hit in training, certain ranges where they need to be to be competitive? I mean certainly I mean the the run the run one is is you know let, let's work backwards. The run one is where if you want to be truly competitive in and let's talk Ironman racing, then you know you need to be able to run under three hours off the bike. Uh, that's that I would say if you're trying to be competitive at a world class level, that's definitely where you need to be. You know what does that equal on a short course distance? I would say under one twenty. Sorry, middle. Uh, sorry, middle middle distance. What does that pertain to in in running sessions? From a sports science perspective, I would say that 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 pace in a you know rest relatively rested state or in the midst of a sort of a training week, that that pace in the marathon should sit you know right around that sort of first sort of threshold or aerobic threshold or VT one. You wouldn't really want, you'd want it ideally to be under that, but you wouldn't really want it to be much over that. So 
that's that's the run. You know, the bike realistically for females, I would say that to be biking at the very sort of tip of the spear, then you you are talking about being able to push sort of three and a half to to sort of three point six, three point seven watts per kilogram body weight. That's gonna put you at the very sharp end of racing. Um, for for the Ironman distance. For the Ironman distance, yeah. Yeah. And then you know, for seventy point three, that's that's likely to be somewhere between sort of three point seven and you know, three point seven five and and four, depending on. Now those numbers may vary depending on how slippery somebody's aerodynamics are. You know, what are what are top females? You know, assuming that there's a fair similarity in body weight, what are top females? pushing and this isn't a direct quote of a specific athlete i work with more my experience but pretty much most top females in an ironman are pushing sort of 210 watts or or more 210 220 yeah um, and for the same one three two two thirty to two fifty two twenty to yeah, two fifty yeah so sort of yeah sort of two thirty to two fifty yeah yeah uh, right yeah and, and swim swim wise the swim, yeah the swim is a the swim is a tough one because you know, you, there's definitely athletes who are better pool swimmers than they are open water swimmers and better open water swimmers than they are pool swimmers. So it's, you know, people say, oh, well, how do you know the difference in pace? And, you know, then there's certain rules of thumb that some coaches would use. You know, they might say, oh, there's about a 10 second difference, but it, it, it's not really simple to do because, you know, how somebody swims in the sea you know, in salt water with non-wetsuit, you know, might be very different to how they swim in relative to their, let's say their swim threshold might be very different to how they swim in a wetsuit in the lake. So, you you know, I'm dancing around a specific answer, but I, I would say, you know, 120 per hundred long course meters as a sustained pace for reps and sets would be something you need to be doing if you were hoping to be, you know, anywhere near that front chase pack at, at, on a world stage. Probably closer to one fifteen if you're trying to be, you know, solidly in that front pack. Yeah. yeah. And do you think? Do you do you foresee any any fur well? further developments i don't mean just in the performance level because i i think that that we always foresee that in sports that the performances keep keep improving but but what do you think is there anything that you think could be drivers of performance in the next five to ten years that you think might be coming up i think thermoregulation and neuromuscular fatigue are are the sort of two key areas that we don't really you know have a good understanding of how to manipulate you know, and, and I'll, I'll touch on the thermoregulation one. You know, there's there's a couple of companies that have worked on using sort of a graphene bonded into suits. Now, graphene is you know it's a type of carbon, and you know is a good heat sink or dissipator of heat. And the logic from a design perspective, whether the logic is flawed or not, but the logic is, you know, that that graphene sort of captures heat in bigger muscle groups 
and then distributes that elsewhere into the suit. So it helps dissipate and heat and regulate core temperature. How well it does that, I haven't tested. But if people are thinking about those sorts of things or they're thinking about other ways of, you know, cooling the body in a, in a high stress environment, you know, whether it's through, you know, frozen water bottles that are touching certain parts of the body when they're on the bike and these sorts of things, I still think there's, you know, opportunities there to improve performance. And then the neuro, the neuromuscular fatigue one is, is one that, you know, I'm working on with one company and, and still trying to sort of get a good sense of where we understand, okay, well, you know, we can, we can understand the metabolics, we can understand the mechanics, but do we really truly get like the, the breakdown in sort of the, the capacity for the muscles to fire beyond, you know, carbohydrate depletion or rising organic phosphates and, and things like that. So I, I think that's definitely an avenue that can be explored in, in long distance triathlon because there just really aren't many studies on Ironman, particularly elites. So it, it, whilst we're applying lots of sports science from endurance, we're still in unknown territory to an extent. Yeah. I, I feel like there's even probably more science about just pure ultra running. And that's just because mm. that started to come up in the last few years in, yeah. in, in academics. But yeah, Ironman, as you say, there's very little on it. And, and most of it seems to be a bit older already at this point. Yes. Like there's not, not a lot of new studies coming out. It seems yeah, about that. Like when you work with, for example, on neuromuscular fatigue, I know which like you're working with an insole, I've, I, which measures a number of variables, I believe. Yeah. So is that something with that example or any other example that you might be investigating? Do you then work, are, are your pro athletes using those products and, and you're trying to learn from the data or what is your process for, for trying to? It, it depends. I mean, I think the, the thing with coaching is you need to be a little bit like Picasso, you know, you need to be able to paint, metaphorically speaking, in, you know, 200 shades of color, but there's only certain things you'll use at certain times for the certain context. So, you know, I might work with one athlete, you know, and I'm not sort of giving specific details, but let's just say for an example, you know, with Ashley, there's certain basic things that I think are important to do as a coach when you're working with female professional athletes. But then the the add-on of of monitoring or testing with various things like say lactate or you know O2 measurement masks or you know pressure sensing insoles, the, 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 you've got to be careful with professional athletes about understanding: do they buy into this approach? Do they see value in it? So whilst there are these things that we can look at, if we feel there's a weakness in their sort of armory of performance, you also have to understand the implications of getting them to buy into it and understand the benefit of using it. So, you know, there are things that I do with some athletes that I don't do with other athletes. There are things that I monitor with some athletes that other athletes just don't want to monitor. Now, you know, I could argue with them and say, you know, you must do this. This is a dictatorship. You know, we must measure HRV every single morning. It's the gospel. But then if you spoke to people that are experts in it, they would say it, it's 
it's a cut, you know, I use this phrase and, and actually, you know, Marco Altini, HRV for training, he quite liked it when I was talking to him the other day. And I said, I always use this phrase with a lot of these things. They're like a compass. They're not GPS coordinates. You know, they give us good direction. They don't necessarily tell us exactly where we are. And to an extent, philosophically speaking, you know, the more and more precise you get with knowing exactly where you are, the less and less likely you are to understand the momentum that you have with the process that you're doing. And that's a sort of a paraphrase of a quote by a philosopher called Heisenberg. But I think it's a very valid point that, you know, you want to try and understand the momentum of the process and the adaptation that you're trying to achieve rather than trying to necessarily get too wrapped up in this piece of data here says we're right at this point here. And that means I must do X and not Y because, you know, we're not human beings are not formula one cars. You know, it's not like sort of change this spark plug or change this fuel injection or change this tire pressure. You know, it a lot more complex, you know, or a complex dynamic system that changes under the same scenario in different environments. So, that's where a lot of the coaching you know, becomes a, a little bit more trying to embrace all of that chaos rather than actually sort of be very reductionist with it and carve it down to very specific details and points and values and measurements. At least, yeah, that's, my, yeah. at least that's, my, that's my view on it after all these years. No, that make, makes total sense. No, I, I was going to follow up just on what, what you mean by using the momentum or like the more precision you get from different measurements and how that means how that might mean that you lose a bit of the momentum but i think that you wrapped it up really nicely there with that that follow-on and basically yeah using a bit of the bigger picture in a way but all, mm. or just yeah as you said yeah, almost embracing the chaos and the entropy that yes. that we have as as humans exactly exactly yeah you know, long, long distance racing is a long long day and you know, you know, people in the public see a particular performance and they might look at it and say, that was incredible. It was just, you know, it was a, you know, it was a regal performance executed perf to perfection. And then you talk to the athletes or the athletes say stuff on social media afterwards. And they're like, no, there was like, it was like a whole maelstrom of chaos at this point. And I just kind of went, I just get on with it. You know, and, you know, Lucy Charles Bartley talked about that in Kona, you know, after her sort of, you know, imperious performance and, you know, has, has openly said on, you know, that she literally thought her Achilles was going to just give out like a K into the run. <laughs> you know? But on, but on the face of it, it looks like this incredible perform, you know, dominating performance. And, and I've, I've personally had athletes in much the same. You know, even even Sky Munch's performance this weekend, which is this weekend passed in Florida, where you know it's it's the second fastest time ever outside of Roth. So, and there's only five women that have gone quicker than her. Her bike performance was the second fastest bike performance of all time by barely a few seconds, and you know it wasn't a walk in the park. You know, I was chatting to Sky last night and she was like, yeah, no, it, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't, you know, or sunshine and roses the whole way through the race. But yeah. it looks like it was. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
It was an 8.22 overall and a bike split 4.23.09. So yeah, that's really rapid. An example that, that I think of sometimes is when about using measurements to predict things and when it works and when it doesn't is very well documented. Andy Jones worked with Paula Radcliffe when she was setting the world records and, and he was able to famously predict her marathon times within a minute or less based on on economy vo2 max and threshold measurements that he he took in the lab and that's for a two hour 15 minutes performance but then when you scale that up to let's say an amateur amateur doing the marathon in four hours then you have a whole other bunch of factors including muscle breakdown over that duration and the difference in psychology between a world-class athlete and an amateur and, and then when you go to and, elite and ultra you, running you have the same issues and, and, and you've triathlon got, you've also, is more complex you've also got yeah you've also got environment you know the the yep. Paula Radcliffe situation, you know, there's little to no drafting. So the the weather conditions are very precisely known or, or sort of predictable, you know, the, the day before the race. In an Ironman, it, it, no, it, it's it's way different. And yeah. that's why and it, and it, and it's not and it's not yeah. and it's not steady state. It's not steady no. state. The marathon no. is steady state. So yeah, it's steady state. And that, you know, whereas in an Ironman, you know, you've got you know, as an example, let's talk about Kona at the pro briefing. You know, Jimmy Riccatello, the head referee, literally said to the ladies present, he said, you know, there's you know, I'm sort of again paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, there's so many talented ladies in this room that for some of you, this will be the first time that you've ever ridden in a pack that's bigger than about two or three people. And he said, try to understand and embrace the fact that even if you're in a pack of like 15 people, you're still only like 20 seconds from the front of that pack. But that's an extremely stressful situation to be in. You know, if you're 10th wheel in that 15 pack, you know, you're, you're constantly trying to focus on maintaining 12 meters, you know, plus, you know, cope with changes in gradient and wind and stay on top of your hydration and your nutrition. You know, that, that's, that's completely non-steady state. And then you've got somebody does something tactically and you think that seems in character or, oh, that seems out of character. I'm not going to get involved with that, you know, and there's all these decisions to make in the moment on the day. So in essence, although it's like one of the longest, hardest, and this is no disrespect to ultra runners, but you know, ultra run intensity and in ultra running is way lower than it is in Ironman. Even though it's like the longest sort of hardest, you know, long endurance event, it's still that this, it's still super stochastic because there's just so many factors at play, so many decisions to make. It's like, it's like 4D chess, I think for, yeah. for professional, you know, triathletes. Yeah. Are there any differences that you see in how the top women or how you implement it, let's say, how top women train compared to the top men in professional long distance triathlon? From my coaching experience, I would say that there is a difference in response to training stimulus between more muscularly dense and muscularly mass-based humans than leaner, more more sort of maybe mitochondrially dense athletes. And and that sounds lots of sciencey words, but what I mean by that is that there's definitely a clear difference between how some females who are you know, sort of 
very solid, powerful athletes respond to training compared to the ones that sort of are maybe a more leaner athlete, even if those athletes cross the finish line roughly the same time, half the time, and the same with the men. And then that's the difference between the men and the women. I think a lot of male athletes having more muscle mass uh, respond to training stimulus a little differently. And you, and you also have to be a little bit careful with run volume, you know, simply because as an example, a male athlete might do, you know, a five hour aerobic ride and, and basically burn 6,000 calories. And, you know, you start adding in all the training sessions in a week and it's a lot of calories, you know, that they have to manage. And so then if they're doing a lot of their run sessions under fueled, you're doubling the injury risk. So what what is the difference that you see in how people respond to training based on the muscle mass, muscular density? I think you have to be, I think you have to be careful with a lot of race specific work that you do with denser individuals. My experience is that the individuals that are, you know, maybe sort of, you know, are more sort of denser, more sort of solid individuals are more likely to respond to a very polarized approach. Whereas female athletes, you can, you can do a little bit more sort of what, what, what people would generally call sort of tempo work than you would do with maybe a similarly talented male simply because of, you know, energetic costs and, you know, load, but then you have to be cognizant of the actual psychological demand of doing a lot of that race specific intensity. You know, I, I think the one thing that probably sits across both is, is that the hardest thing to do is to manage the, you know, the energetic costs of the training. When you compare like Olympic swimmers and Olympic runners, like marathon runners and grand tour cyclists, like professional Ironman athletes train more than all of those athletes. So swimmers may train similar hours with, you know, adding in the strength and conditioning as well, but it's all non-weight bearing. Cyclists may train almost as much, maybe not quite as much, but it's semi-weight bearing. You know, Olympic marathon runners will train nowhere near the amount of hours as as a long distance triathlete. So that's, you know, even before you get into the physics and the biomechanics and you know, just from an energetic perspective, you've got to be really careful with that because once you get into this situation of athletes doing a lot of training under fueled, even if they're going to bed, having replenished the sort of the calories that they've expended that day and, and met their sort of basal metabolic needs, if they're doing a lot of training sessions under fueled, you're running into possible adaptation issues and injury risk issues. And, and so that's where say with your professional triathlete, who sort of works full-time or part-time, you know, you might be in a situation where they're back to backing sessions and, and you've got to be really careful with that because sometimes they just forget. They just think, you know, I've got to do this stuff before I go to work. And then I've got room to do a little bit of stuff later in the day. And because they're back to backing those sort of three hours of training in the morning, you know, they're not really fueling properly and they're just spending the rest of the day catching up. So that, that, that I think is a really big key point about, you know, professional racing and obviously particularly with female athletes, because you want, my personal view is you want every 
endurance female athlete to maintain a healthy menstrual cycle. You know, they, they, you know it shouldn't be acceptable that they're sort of amenorrheic for periods of time. Yeah, no, I don't think that's a that's that's not a hot take. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, but but yeah, that, that, that's but but still, we we see it a lot, unfortunately. So, yeah, that, and how does that factor into your coaching? Then is that something that you have frequent conversations about, and and just keep reminding the athletes to with how much to fuel their sessions and and during and between sessions and so on? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's an importance to fuel workouts you know even when they're relatively low intensity workouts because in the context of things they're still you know relatively hard sessions obviously if it's a short session 30 45 60 minutes not really there's not any need to to fuel it once you start getting into sort of you know an hour 15 an hour and 20 hour and 30 then i would argue you definitely need to fuel that not necessarily because sports science says you need to fuel it because the sports science says you only really need to fuel anything longer than about 90 minutes but actually i would say for long distance triathletes that's more like an hour because you've got other sessions to do the rest of the day so do you just do you want to make a rod for your own back and suddenly have to like you know have another sort of three four hundred calories to have to make up between sessions doesn't have to be sports nutrition you know it can be real food but I, I think this is an important area yeah are there any other any differences that or is everything else pretty similar that comes to mind between how the pro men and pro women train i think is, do you for example do you do strength training similar with both sexes or are there any differences there the differences in strength training come with the individual rather than necessarily gender <laughs> i i think with female individuals i think it's it's really really important though to 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 have a good strength and conditioning program simply because uh, coming back to the sort of the issue of sort of reds and bone density and things like that you know you really want to make sure that you're maintaining that so that that's where i think it there's a slight difference but I, I think my personal view, I know there's coaches out there that think strength training is a waste of time. You do all your strength training within the swimming and the biking and the running. And, and I and I fundamentally disagree with that. I think that's that's a recipe for disaster, particularly when athletes might be spending time underfueled. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Let me see here. We have quite a lot of questions, so I'm just trying to see if there's something that we should skip or not do you let's um, go to let, you want to go into the winter training things that you wanted to talk about i no, i or want to, to continue a studies? little a little bit with this but i might skip the the next question on our list yeah we definitely want we'll do the case studies and then but i also want to talk just a little bit about the ironman versus 713 versus pto 100k distance do you think that well obviously Ashley is specializing in the PTO and also then 713. I guess they're very similar, but and then you have some other some other athletes that can do both, like Lucy Charles Barkley has done well at, at both distances. But but do you think that spe- specialization in one of these distances is or is becoming a performance advantage, or is it still just like long endurance anyway? So the best athlete could theoretically be equally good at, at both distances from Ironman to PTO. I, I think the I think there's a I think you can be good short course and middle distance, and I think you can be good at middle distance and an Ironman. I don't think you can bridge all three, or at least 
I don't think you can bridge your three back and forth. I think you can segue from short and middle up to long, but I think going back down that ladder is very difficult. And that might sound like a criticism of the Norwegians and what they're trying to do. I just find it very difficult to process how you're going to achieve that from a physiological perspective when you've transitioned up from short to middle to long. You know, honestly, if they pull it off and, and, you know, Christian gets a medal, the Olympics, that will be stunning in Paris. It'd be an amazing achievement. I I just think that that, that's an an incredibly difficult task. I do think though that that there's, not necessarily a need for specialization in middle distance versus Ironman. Some people are more suited to that, you know, using physiological terms. You know, you could say that somebody is more suited to longer Ironman stuff versus shorter. And that's not as simple as saying that maybe they're just a, not as good a swimmer, but that generally might be the start point because mathematically the swim is, you know, less important in an Ironman, although that's becoming a narrower and narrower opportunity these days yeah that make, makes sense and, and I, I i definitely agree with the norwegians but but yeah also i don't think they're doing it because because it's easy they're doing it to see if they can yeah. do it and yeah, and if absolutely. they if they if they succeed amazing but yeah i, I agree yeah. i think that it would be for me I, I i struggle to see christian getting getting a medal i think he will be potentially top six top five top eight but a medal would be hard to see yeah, I mean, certainly the French are definitely doing something right um, yeah, yeah. with their short course athletes. And that's even before you think about Hayden, Wilde and, and Alex Yee. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's get into some case studies. So starting with Ashley Gentle, do you give a brief synopsis, I guess, of her training overall and, and then maybe an example training week leading into one of her key PTO races? So depending on the time of year, Ashley's training may vary. Typically, I I work on a block periodization basis. So I feel that there's definitely a need to do, you know, a significant bias towards aerobic and neuromuscular work. And then from that, you segue into intensity. From that, you segue into sort of race specificity. However, as the season progresses, you run into a situation with many endurance athletes that they literally aren't doing enough training stimulus to continue to see their fitness improve. So whilst they maybe are getting better racing, there starts to be this tipping point where maybe their their aerob- their underlying aerobic fitness is starting to drop off a bit because they're just not getting enough stimulus because of you know tapering and recovering from races or travel and so at certain points in the year we may step back and then just do like a massive block of aerobic volume into a race and so that taper would look very different to a previous taper where it was much more race specific where i differ to some coaches is i do tend to use a lot of very sort of race specific style workouts where we're almost doing a session that's based on scenarios that they can then visualize versus you know physiological specificity of you know we want to do some vo2 intervals now you might on paper look at a workout that's written to reflect the particular dynamics of a race situation and go oh yeah that's you know a couple of threshold intervals and then you know a vo2 interval 
but that's the byproduct of the starting point where I'm I'm being very scenario specific. So that's that's something I I tend to do with the the professional athletes a lot. Yeah. Because I think ultimately that's what you need to prepare them for, you know, and, and to an extent the same with age groupers. You need to prepare them to be able to execute all of the chaos of decision making that happens around them. So what does a you know, what does a typical week look like for Ashley? I mean, she typically would swim five times a week, bike about four times, and and run about four times. Her run volume's not particularly high. Generally speaking, sort of between five and sort of around five, five and a half hours. Whereas if you compare that to say somebody like Sky, who is sort of somewhat different physiology, Sky tends to do well off higher run volume. So you know, Sky would typically be running six, seven hours a week on top of the biking and the swimming. So, yeah, it's I I, I would say that the, like the way I work with Ashley, the the typical training week is is much more about sort of quality and recovery versus significant volumes of stimulus because that's what her body seems to respond really well to. And then we just need to make sure that we're always sort of stepping back and and doing enough aerobic easy aerobic work to kind of keep pushing the the sort of the base aerobic fitness up whereas sorry go on when you say that it's not about significant volumes of stimulus that does that mean that the if we call it the the more intense work or specific workouts that they don't necessarily have that much volume in in themselves in within a single workout or is it more about the overall more the volume o- more the overall more the overall right um, the the type of sessions or the type of thought processes behind certain number of intervals or reps that i might do with one athlete versus another are fairly similar but there might be very small differences like a couple of yeah. reps here and there yeah so if you could give an example of uh, like one of the three weeks two weeks four weeks before a pto race what would a a key swim and a key run and a key bike look like for ashley for Um, example a a key a key run session would be a, a run session where we do sort of descending descending intervals at at race pace with ascending short surges so we would sort of typically do maybe sort of, you know, five minutes at race pace and then 30 seconds at sort of VO2 effort. And then that would go to sort of four minutes at race pace and then 45 seconds and then three minutes at race pace and then 60 seconds, that type of thing. Again, going to this sort of scenario idea. Bike-wise, a very similar thought processor where we would do a session that reflects the need to come out of transition and ride fairly hard for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then settle down and then cope with sort of surges of intensity four or five or six times before settling back down. And and sometimes I might flip that round. I might do that in a way where we do sort of like a three-hour bike ride where, you know, post-warm-up we do sort of three-minute efforts like, you know, just above race pace, you know, with sort of a nine-minute recovery and do sort of four or five of those and then some easy aerobic riding and then some six-minute efforts and six minutes of recovery and maybe only three of those and then some recovery and then 
some nine minute efforts with a three minute recovery. And those, those efforts are always slightly above race effort. And the recovery on those is slightly below. So sort of under over race pace work, much like a scenario you might find if you're riding in a group. And, and the swim example, the swim, the, the, the swim, I, I, I tend to come at it depending on the individual. So if somebody needs to work on sort of making that first pack, we might do a session where we do some really hard efforts to drive the lactate up and then sort of trying to settle in to their goal effort versus pace, but their goal effort, or we might start out and say, okay, we know that Ironman effort or, or PTO effort for you is sort of about this pace. You know, you know from experience that for argument's sake, like 116 in the pool is feels the same as race pace in an open water environment with a skin suit on. So then we'd go, right, let's do sort of 2K of work at 116 pace, but you can slice that up as you see fit all that matters is you swim 116 pace and you take the recovery that you want or need in order to maintain that 116 pace and, and that's a very specific you know sort of session that we might do leading into a race just to kind of get a litmus test of where things are at yep with, with ashley does she do most of her riding outdoors or does she do a lot of work on the on the turbo or is it a mix of both it's, it's a mix of both i mean where her and josh amberger her husband who i also coach where they live is you know in a great environment just outside brisbane where there's lots of sort of rolling terrain to train on so you know this time of year a lot of the riding has been outdoors but sometimes the sessions that we do are very specific so we might do those indoors yeah and uh, and in terms of volume this is the final question on ashley uh, what would just a bit of a range when in those final preparation weeks for a pto race what is the volume then versus what is the volume when you mentioned the big kind of aerobic weeks that you might have earlier in the year and also mid-season at, at some point yeah you know a typical you know typically around 20 to 22 hours leading into a big race the bigger weeks are sort of 24 to 25 so yep so not massive volume but still you know a decent amount and and that's what works for ashley yeah so so create study number two sky munch let's go into that maybe let's start with volume for her to get a bit of a contrast with an ironman specialist yeah, I mean that's the clear difference is that Sky's bias is is Ironman. So, you know, leading into an Ironman, Sky's typically training sort of twenty eight hours a week, give or take an hour. But that that's a typical week of of training for her swim, bike, run, strength and conditioning. As we get closer to the race, that will sort of taper down into low twenties two weeks out from the race even the week of the race it will be sort of 14 hours of training prior to the actual race so 13 mm. 14 hours of training prior to the yeah. race because what seems to work for sky is not too long a taper but still a gradual fade in intensity so you know that's something that we've we've worked on and learned over the last season 
you know, and that's what we did moving in, you know, into Kona and, and that's what we did moving into Florida. Yeah. And similar to what you did for Ashley, can you give a bit of a, an overview of her training and then go into a bit of an, a description of a typical week? Certainly in terms of a, an example session, a long descending run is something that I I favor with some athletes, particularly like Sky. So in, in the weeks leading into the race, you know, we would have done a a long descending run where it's effectively a warm up and then one, two, three, four, five, six by three miles descending and then a cool down. So, you know, overall that's almost a, almost a 39 K session and that's descending down to a roundabout threshold. Hmm. And I'll do that session with, with sky in the weeks leading into a race and and with some other athletes and then another key session i think is is also a sort of an an under over session which is longer time wise than they'll race in the ironman so they'll ride sort of 15 minutes on 15 minutes off sort of slightly above ironman effort and slightly below ironman effort and they'll do that for sort of five five and a half hours and and for a swim do you have an example for a, of for a swim a lot of the swim is very specific to the individual and their sort of developmental needs with sky you know we've done a lot of work rebuilding her stroke so that she has better awareness of catch and ability to apply force at the catch so we've done quite a lot of work with parachute and then sort of going from that into sort of some short fast swimming so I know we would you know, typically do something where we might do some sets of fifties with the parachute and then go into some two hundreds, one or two, two hundreds really fast. And then lots of aerobic recovery and then repeat that set. Yep. And what about over the course of a week, how many swims, bikes and runs would you typically do? Typically the swims, sky swimming sort of five times a week, sometimes six bikes, five and runs five and you know people talk about rest days and sort of say you know well when do athletes take rest days my experience with that is that for some athletes they respond really badly to taking a complete day of rest others respond really well others respond really badly so you have to be sensitive to that i think the second thing is is that also i tend to try and plan that around sort of you know family or social commitments so some you know many individuals male or female have a very supportive partner and that partner might work full-time monday to friday so for many pro athletes i've often had them having like an active recovery or rest day on a saturday or sunday so they can spend it with a partner or family or you know sort of going to church and things like that and that's not necessarily physiologically based but it's definitely psychologically based yeah and what about in terms of the weekly or let's say mesocycle structure do you favor consistent weeks or do you i I definitely favor consistent weeks i I don't see any scientific true scientific evidence and value in the sort of three-week build one-week recovery i think there's a natural ebb and flow 
to the consistency that's reflective of the intensity within a week and the cognitive demand. Again, going back to the training that iron long distance Ironman triathletes do, you know, you can sit down with a physiology textbook and you can work out that if you want to improve threshold, you need to do threshold orientated sessions for, you know, eight to 12 weeks to really see the physiological benefit of that. But the reality is when you've got somebody training 25 to 30 hours a week across three different sports or four, if you include strength and conditioning, and you're trying to get them to do the same really hard, cognitively demanding intervals, like for eight weeks straight, like mentally, most people are burnt out after four weeks. So I tend to look at things on a sort of three, four week basis, depending on what the bias is that we're trying to stimulate or work on going back to that sort of idea of block periodization. But, but a lot of that tends to get a lot more fluid as we get closer to a race and we're working on specific scenarios. But, yeah. But a 10,000 foot view would still be broadly speaking. The training is, I, I would argue the, the, the training that I give athletes is broadly speaking, pyramidal versus polarized, but there may be times where it's very polarized and times where it's, very pyramidal yeah all right so then let's go into the second uh, main topic for today which is more age group based and, and it's about the off-season training i'm going to use stick to that term for yeah. now and yeah let's start with how do you view the off-season training for age group athletes what would be the objectives <laughs> and how how do you achieve them from a yeah from a ten thousand foot overview i definitely think there's a need particularly with and i'll caveat this with saying that you know that we've seen this evolution of pto racing as well as 70.3 racing as well as middle distance racing with challenge as well as ironman and long distance racing with challenge and we've seen this evolution of the race calendar and i think what that has what's become very apparent is that athletes really need to understand the importance of mentally refreshing and recalibrating at least once or twice a season. And so from an off-season perspective, even with age group athletes, I would want them to sort of try and step back and reduce the, the structure that they have within over a couple of weeks. And then as they get back into training, keep things very much sort of fundamentals orientated. So, you know, working on turnover and foot speed, working on aerobic fitness. And then it depends on the race season. You know, then it depends on what races are they doing? What are they, are they stepping up in distance? The, the periodization over the year of strength and conditioning is not dramatic from my point of view. You know, I don't go into like a hypertrophy phase in the off season and then it's different later in the year. It's more continuing to work on that trunk and core stability and strength yeah when when you have i as you say you can there are definitely a, you can choose to race for a very long period of the year if you if if you want to make use of the calendar let's say not to say that that's the smartest idea but but that's an option but i from from my from my coaching and and interactions with athletes as well i, I do see that it's quite common still that athletes tend to have a lot of athletes in the northern hemisphere have november december january february march at least as as months where they don't have any racing so so typical so very typical would be mid 
the end of October at some point you you get into your two week break and then you have a good four five even six months until your first race of the of the next year in in Europe and North America that that seems to be quite common so so if you have that amount of time how would you think about the swimming biking and running throughout that period period and and what if any in what way or if any way should it kind of progress through that period until you get into your let's say your key eight weeks before your first race or six weeks before your first race i would say that it depends on where somebody lives for somebody that's very northern hemisphere or even sort of scandinavian you know you might actually in the winter look into sort of you know cross training you know, ways of cross training uh, or ways of working on sort of vo2 max to doing a fairly intense block simply because you know going for a four-hour bike ride in finland in december is not so practical unless you own a fat bike um, but i have had athletes that live in sort of like say minnesota that that go out for a couple of hours on a fat bike so I think you need to contextualize it with where are they based on what are they doing and then also what do you want to develop? Because I don't necessarily think that, you know, base off season should be base training and in season is more race specific because for some people it might be better to take a reverse periodization approach and do, you know, the intense work and then segue into aerobic work. But you, you have to be quite careful with how you do that you know, to avoid sort of injury risk, particularly in the run. So I think that's, you know, a common misconception. So that would be my first thing of looking at. And the second thing would be, you know, what does this athlete need to work on? So as an age group athlete, you know, what, what areas of development, is it a good time to really focus on your swim? Because realistically for most people, they can get back into really good bike and run shape within three months. So if they can get back into good run and bike shape in three months, then, you know, what's the harm in spending three months, you know, really, really upping the swim volume. And, and I would argue for a lot of people, that's the best thing to do because the reality is, is to get from, you know, to use some numbers that I use when I'm, I'm teaching and mentoring is, is to take somebody that's say an age group swimmer in an Olympic distance race from say a 35 minute swim split, to a 30 minute swim split is you know, some basic tuition around stroke technique and some swim sessions to get somebody from 30 to sort of 26 is, you know, some technique work and more swimming to get from 26 to low twenties, sort of 23 or under 23 is an absolute ton of swim volume. So the reality is for most people that are looking to progress, depending on where they are, they sit on that example, you know, they probably just need to swim more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think coming back to what you said about where people live, another, I, I completely agree. And, and I think another reason that I agree with that so much is that when if you have six months until your next race and for age groupers motivation can become an issue and, and you so you want to do things that that will keep you motivated and keep things fun and if you need to if you think that you need to spend three three hours on the trainer and you absolutely detest it or even if you think that it's just moderately boring that's probably not going to be good for to do for for a six-month period so maybe you do focus more on shorter sessions with a bit more intensity during that point and, and if that's what makes it fun that's what helps you stay consistent then that's probably what's going to be better in the long you know, term 100 agree I, I think people people neglect the importance of of fun 
throughout the entire season, but, but, you know, even for the professional athletes, pretty much the first thing that Sky said to me when we started working together was I want, you know, I need to rediscover having fun in training and racing. So figure it out. And, and, and that's just, you know, that, that, that's about understanding, you know, what are the things that, that create positive energy in an athlete, you know, whether they're training on their own or in a group environment, and nurturing that in a way that it fits into a framework of a framework of physiological development. You know, you can sit there with a perfect spreadsheet of block periodization and planning, but actually, like, as you said, if it's mind numbingly boring, you know, most people are going to just give up on it after a couple of weeks. So, you know, at this time of year, a topic with many of my athletes is, Hey, is there a, is there a local cross country league that you want to go do? you know, whether they're based in the U S or, or in Europe, because I think I see a lot of value in doing that sort of trail running and, and it's fun. So, you know, I let athletes do that kind of thing. I've, I've known some coaches that will say just, just for no reason, but, but just for the pure, pure sake of fun, you know, that I like Jay Rodriguez told me this, a swim coach. And he said with his, his squad in the winter, he's, he sort of says to them, right, you know, we're, we're all going to do a swim meet in the spring, even though you're triathletes, we're all going to swim meet. And basically you're all going to have a go at 200 butterfly. (laughs) (laughs) Firstly, when you mention butterfly to triathletes, there's sort of, there's this balk of terror. And then you say 200 and they're like, okay, you know, you may as well have just asked me to, you know, work out an Einstein equation. But the reason that he does that is because, you know, he said to me, the reason I do it is because if they can, it doesn't matter about the time, but if they can challenge themselves and put themselves through that and achieve that, you know, anybody in swimming knows 200 butterfly is a super hard distance and stroke to do. So as a triathlete, if you can take the positive, the positivity of achieving that, like, you know, Oh, actually I've done a 200 meter butterfly race and carry that positivity into the rest of your training and racing the rest of the year that's huge so i I think things like that you know they're not you know then they're ways and means of ensuring that there's you know challenge and opportunity and fun in training you know whether you're you know ashley gentle or or you know or just an age grouper you know like recently just recently you know ashley and, and josh would go and do a local park run so they would you know, do a long warm up because it was their long run day. So they do a long warm up, go do the local park run, give it a good smash, and then do a long cool down. And so on the day, they'd end up running about sort of an hour and 45 minutes. But in the midst of that is, you know, is a, is a hard 5K. And how hard did I make it? I said, make it as hard as you want to make it. Yep. So, and sometimes that was very rapid and other times it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, th- those are great points. And uh, so so one misconception that you already pointed out there is that the off-season training does not have to be just, quote-unquote, base training. Are there any other misconceptions that you think exist around, yeah, the off-season training? Yes. There's no, yeah, there's no, I think in the off-season, everybody starts looking for magic bullets of, you know, this piece of equipment or, you know, this technique of training. There isn't, you know, if you asked me, you know, what, what does, you know, Justin, Josh, Rasmus, you know, Ashley, Sky, you know, what, what do they, Amelia, what do they all do really well? They just, just train consistently. 
not rocket science. You know, they're, they're just trained consistently, give me good feedback, understand, you know, what they're trying to achieve in a workout versus getting wrapped up in the specificity of a certain number. And they do that consistently. And, and that's what, you know, that that's, that's professionalism. You know, you add into that focusing on recovery. You know, I talked about underfueling. You add into that, you know, eating well, sleeping well, looking after the body. You know, these are all like, you know, just aspects of professionalism. I think for for young professional athletes these days or age groupers that want to turn professional, I think we live in a day and age where some people think that sort of being an influencer is is as important and i'd argue that until you're getting the results that matter stop stressing about influencing on social media because actually nobody really cares and that sounds really old and curmudgeonly but it's the truth you know there's so many young athletes today that are you know stressing out about you know posting workouts posting them doing a session you know tagging you know potential sponsors and sponsors and it's like stop stressing over that and focus on eating sleeping grocery shopping cooking you know i mean these are these are basic human you know daily activities of living that you know some people struggle with and that's where i step back as a coach and say okay well what what are you actually struggling with because you can swim you can bite you can run but you know are you managing to do your grocery shopping not really. Okay, right. Well, let's have a discussion about that. Do I need to put it in training peaks? You know, I, I joke. I did it the other day with one athlete. I put in, a, you know, no training this afternoon, one hour of grocery shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards they said, I felt so much better after I got that done. I was like, yeah. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. We we talked about how you might do a reverse periodization depending on where you live and the climate and so on. But do you think there is a danger of people going too hard too early in the season or or maybe for too long a period is a more apt way of describing it? Yeah, just pushing pushing the limits, let's say, a bit a bit too much. I think it's it's trying to understand what you're doing with those that that type of work. Are you trying to if you want to get wrapped up in the science of it are you trying to work on your ability to tolerate lactate or are you trying to work on sort of central stimulus so that's so in essence what i'm saying is you may be like manipulating the recovery to rest sorry the rest to work ratio to be more reflective of a concern for doing the work properly versus you know creating a metabolic stress that you know, starts to add up and add up and add up and then they're not recovering. And that's how I tend to come at things is more being more concerned about the actual work and less concerned about shortening the recovery to create some sort of high intensity interval training response. Because the reality is, is I'm more interested in the production of force or the speed of turnover or the pressure on the water than I am with generally speaking the metabolics yeah no i think that's a really good good point and and i think it's something i talked about quite a lot in the context of swimming especially that there is this almost an obsession with really short rests that i think for a lot of people 
just really reduces the quality of the work, especially in a technical discipline like swimming. But I think the same can be true for cycling and, and running as well, for sure, at least in terms of the output, but also in terms of running, just in terms of injury risk and so on. So so I, I, I do really do like that, that point. And in terms of recovery management, otherwise during this phase of the year, is it at all different from from in season between races is does anything change at all on that side of thing whether it's rest days or easier periods or or anything else not not particularly you know sort of going back to that point about sort of three weeks on one week of recovery you know certainly when with the professional athletes when we're really pushing the envelope i would say that after a couple of you know three or four weeks of just really really pushing the envelope you know it's still consistent training but let's say you know like three or four weeks of like big volume lots of intensity there is probably a need to unwind for two to three days but what's interesting with the professional athletes if you start unwinding for a whole week you actually get you know you actually see it you know start to see them feel like they're getting a drop off in fitness because some people will bounce back from you know, a hard 30 week hour of training in two days, you know, other people might take five days, but generally speaking, it's on the shorter side with professional athletes with age groupers, it's longer. So there's not really too much difference. I still see value in, in recovery days or active recovery days. I still see value in people getting, you know, sports massage. If, if that's what they feel helps them, I'm not necessarily saying, it's the be all and end all, but some people find it really beneficial. Other people don't. You can debate the whys of that from a, a physiology perspective, but I'm, I'm totally fine with people having you know weekly massages. But then you need to be cognizant of how their body's going to feel the next day, particularly if it's been you know a fairly deep massage. Yeah. So, so to, if we summarize some of the tips here that uh, that we have or that you have come up with for age groupers about their off-season training it is not too many things need to change be consistent that's the main thing use your environment or adapt the training to your environment and to your climate have fun consider maybe changing things up with more swimming if that's something you need to work on and yeah those are those are a few of the main things yeah i think yeah i would i would say it's you know keep an eye on what your areas of development are because it's a good time to work on those yeah so that hence the swim comment, yeah. um, try to create as much complementarity between, you know, your circumstances and the logistics of training and social or family commitments and, you know, things like that. And you don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's, it's meant to be fun. People think that, you know, it needs to be super serious and laser focused. And the funny thing is, is when you look at a lot of elite athletes is that, yeah, when they're doing an interval or a session, they're definitely 100% focused, but as soon as they finish it there, it's like a light switch, you know, they're, you know, relaxed, having fun, enjoying themselves and, and don't lose sight of that. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, when you're, when you're training consistently for six to nine months towards a big Ironman, you know, you start losing sight of that four weeks into training that six to nine months is going to get very, very tough. Yeah. What you mentioned there about considering developmental areas, that reminded me of something that I, I'd like to ask, which is wh- how do you view training strengths 
versus and or balance let's say balancing training strengths and training weaknesses of an athlete and and how does that change through through the year it doesn't change too much as an overarching sort of thought process in my head from a planning perspective i'm never really trying to turn weaknesses into strengths i'm more trying to sort of improve weaknesses a little bit but play to strengths because ultimately people are built sort of physiologically or biomechanically certain ways and so you know if i if i talk about ashley as an example you know i think it's easy for us to sit here and say that you know ashley is one of the most biomechanically stunning runners to watch in the sport and probably the best runner in the sport bar maybe Anne Haug or Anna Haug if I pronounce it correctly and so in terms of the training that I do with her it's very basic you know I, I, I have small doses of speed and turnover work and lots of aerobic work on you know various surfaces and gradients and terrains and I don't get carried away with trying to you know do you know, massive amounts of work to improve, you know, her run threshold. You know, it, it, I keep it fairly fundamentally simple because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's kind of thing. I have a couple of other questions, just general fun coaching questions. And the first one is, can you give an example of one training or performance related question that you've been thinking about recently and trying to understand better or optimize in some way? Oh, I guess decision making capacity under stress. So when when professional athletes are racing and they're in the sort of the heat of the moment, people are making decisions around them about, you know, attacking on the bike and not attacking on the bike and helping, you know, what what are the ways and techniques beyond racing, actually just going and racing and doing things, you know, what are the ways and techniques that we can improve that decision making capacity? under duress it's easy to improve it when you're not under duress it's very hard to improve it when you know you're stressed and tired do you do you have any any thoughts about solutions for that um i mean there's ways of creating stressful environments from a training perspective that that you that you can do where you can get people to you know do certain workouts to failure or you know, you if you're doing face-to-face sessions, you might not give the any indication of how many reps they're doing. Or you might, if you've got a group environment, you might have people train in a way where they don't necessarily know whether they're going to have to chase that person or that person. And, and, and just creating you know, a little bit of chaos in order to give them the opportunity to learn to navigate that. Yep. And... What is a book that you've enjoyed recently? It doesn't have to be sport-related. Oh, um, yeah, that's a tough one. I would probably say most recently it's Julia Galef's The Scout Mindset, which is yeah around around sort of psychology and you know how to approach situations. And finally, general question again, coming back to age group athletes a little bit more, but can you give one? more tip other than the ones that you've already given for age groupers that might help them improve their training in each of the three disciplines. So one tip to improve swim training, one for bike training and one for run training. 
stop using a pull buoy and paddles all the time in swim training. <laughs> that's I'm sorry, but that that is yeah, it's a cardinal sin in many pro many triathletes and professional triathletes, in my view. On the bike, I would say, you know, really try and figure out hydration, nutrition, electrolyte needs. It's a big part of performing on the day and it's related to the intensity that you're racing at. So uh, I think, you know, experiment with that or work out what products work for you, don't work for you. You know, it's not all about this product is the latest sports science product that everybody's using. You know, I've had some athletes use some of these products that are supposedly amazing and they say my like it ruins my GI system and they use something else and they're like, that felt great. Now on paper, they've got the same amount of calories and electrolytes, but some people respond differently to different things. So I would say, get that button down. And on the run, I'd honestly say the biggest improvement to your run ability in triathlon that you could do is, is trail running and cross country running, not necessarily racing, but just, you know, steady, easy, aerobic, trail and cross-country running so if you've got access to that great then you know go go do that at the weekends that will massively improve your running ability that's great great tips thank you for that and yeah i think that's that's about it do you have anything else to add anything you want to chat about <laughs> no i think i've had a lot of things there I, I think there's always you know always always be learning uh, is i think what i would say to people whether there's coaches listening or professional athletes or age groupers, you know, always, always be learning and, and trying to understand what you can do, you know, better, you know, next month, next year. Yep. Thank you so much, David. A link okay. to, to your website and Instagram so people can follow you there. And yeah, until next time. All the best. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where links to David's uh, previous appearances on the podcast as well as his own website and social media. Now, if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want some help to achieve your goals, then consider working with uh, a scientific triathlon coach or training plan. We have options for athletes of all different levels, for different budgets, and uh, no matter the size of your goal. A few points to highlight that reduce the barrier to get started is that we have no minimum commitment term nor startup fee for coaching. And for training plans, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on our website and an exchange guarantee so you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase through training we also have consultation and customized plan options so find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what's best for you finally big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com if you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products i would highly recommend trying them out you can use a free fuel and hydration planner or even a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy and don't forget to take 15 percent off your first order with the code tts23 and thank you to form that you can find on forcing.com forward slash tts improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace circuit and heart rate and advanced post-swim analysis and use the code tts15 to get 15 off the form smart swim goggles thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon